Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 14 this morning. And uh, we're going to be finishing up on Paul's first missionary journey and actually focusing primarily on the, uh, the journey back to his sending church, which is Antioch of Syria. Not to be confused with the Antioch of Pisidia, where he ministered during his partly uh, during his first missionary journey. So we'll be looking at Acts chapter 14. And I'd like to uh, begin in verse uh, 19, just to remind you of the context, and then we'll read down through verse 28. So please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word beginning in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So what we're looking at uh, now is uh, the return trip. Uh, So we're at the end of the first missionary journey They ended up at Derby, and instead of going through Cilicia back to Antioch, which is their sending church, they actually turn around and they retrace all their steps and go back to every uh, city where they had preached the gospel. So what they were doing in this return trip is strengthening the church. We saw this in verse 22. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to to continue in the faith, reminding them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not an easy life. There will be persecution, there will be troubles and trials of all kinds. And we looked at that last week. So as they were going back through all these churches, that's what they're telling them. They're strengthening them, they're encouraging them, they're reminding them to expect tribulations and troubles in their life. It's just part of faithful Christian living. But also in verse 23, we find that they're doing another very important aspect of their ministry, and that is to appoint leaders in every church, specifically elders. 
And they will do that in every church that they go through. Derby, Iconium, Antioch. They'll come down and preach to Perga, which they did not preach as they were going out. But on the way back, they stop and preach in Perga. Many come to faith there. And then they bypass the island of Cyprus and then they sail straight over to Seleucia and then back to Antioch. But in every church that they had founded, every place where they had preached, in verse 23, we read that they appointed elders for them in every church. So it's very vital for the health and growth and vitality of any local church to have leaders in the church. And Paul understood that. And Paul was committed to training and developing and calling men to be those leaders. And that's what he did. Even though they were relatively a young congregation. I mean, for some of them, they were only a a few weeks old in the Lord. Or a few months. But uh, the Spirit of God certainly was at work in in bringing this to pass. So I want to kind of stop and examine this because... Uh, We're about to embark on a new leadership training class in our church. And I think it would be good to just let you know the importance of what Paul is doing and why it's so vital to this ministry of, of appointing elders in each local church. So we look at the office of an elder that's mentioned here in verse 23. It's uh, restricted to men. Not because men are always more spiritual and more godly, but that's the way God ordained it. That's the way He set it up. So it's an office that men should fill. There are several different words used to describe elders in the local church. Uh, the term elder that's used in verse 23, presbyteros, from which we get our English word presbytery that the Presbyterians uh, like to use in their church government, their, uh, their elder board. But the word elder signifies that the men who hold that office should have a level of, of dignity and spiritual maturity. Uh, they not are necessarily older men. They can be younger men. But if they're younger men, they need to have the maturity of older men. So they need to be elders, spiritually speaking, in the sense of dignity and maturity. Other words that are used to describe this same group of men are overseer or the King James will have bishop. And so like in 1 Timothy 3.1, when Paul says, if anyone desires to be an overseer or a bishop, it's a good work that he desires to do. And he's talking about the office of the elder. But the overseer title refers to their function. They are to oversee the life of the church. They are to be watchmen, if you, if you will. Uh, They're to work as stewards of God's people, keeping an eye, keeping a watch on Christ's sheep, if you will. Uh, This particular word for overseer uh, is used specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2, that you have returned to to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. And that idea is used of, of Jesus Christ there. The guardian, the one who looks over. And then you have the word shepherd or pastor, same word. A pastor is a shepherd. When you think of the the title that's often used today of pastor so-and-so, 
A pastor is a shepherd. Those words are synonymous. And the word pastor, again, describes their relationship and ministry to the church as the sheep of God. So the elders are to be overseers. The elders are to be shepherds or pastors of the flock of God. Now what's interesting is that the the word pastor, shepherd, occurs 17, 17 times in the New Testament. And normally it's used for literal shepherds who have sheep that are out in the field and they're keeping watch by night. Remember when uh, in Luke, in the birth narrative of our Lord, the shepherds were out in the field. That's the way it's normally used throughout the New Testament of literal shepherds who are, who are uh, leading and guiding their sheep. But this word is also used specifically of Christ. For example, in John 10, Jesus refers to Himself as the Good Shepherd. In Hebrews 13, He's described as the Great Shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, he's referred to as the chief shepherd. And Jesus implies that really there's only one pastor. There's only one shepherd of the church, ultimately, and that's him. So in John 10:16, he said, you know, I have sheep in another fold, not the Jewish fold, but he's talking about Gentile sheep coming in, and I will bring them together so they will be one flock with one shepherd, that is one pastor. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, for elders, it's only used one time in the New Testament for the office of elder, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. And again, it's in the plural. It's pastors and teachers. Or the ESV translates it equally well, shepherds and teachers. But that's the only time it refers to the office of the elder. And again, it's in the plural. Because each local church should have a plurality of these. And that leads us to the next observation in Acts 14.23 that it says, when they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church. They don't just appoint one pastor, no, or one shepherd because they're the same word, they appoint a a plurality of pastors or shepherds. A plurality. And this you find consistently throughout the New Testament. There should always be a plurality of leaders within the local church. Later on in Acts 20, verse 17, Paul will call the elders, plural, of the church of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. Not just one pastor, but pastors or shepherds or elders. In James 5.14, if anyone is sick, call for the elders of the church, plural. In Titus 1.5, when Paul sends Titus to the island of Crete, he says, I sent you there to appoint elders, plural, in every city. And even when uh, you find letters that are written to churches, they're never written to one man who's the pastor. That concept did not emerge until later on. But they always wrote to the leaders, the plural leaders. So in Philippians 1, verse 1, says Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. They never write it to, to the pastor of the church. Again, that concept was unheard of uh, as they're uh, 
beginning to develop these, these churches. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it's always obey your leaders, plural. For they keep watch over your soul. They're overseers. They're elders. So it's always plural. Now in light of this, John Stott in his commentary made this astute observation. He said the elders were local and they were plural. The familiar modern pattern of one pastor, one church was simply unknown. Instead, there was a pastoral team. The elders worked together. They may have different gifts, different abilities, but it's a, it's a plurality of, of elders. Now, the reason for that should be very clear because number one, Jesus said that He's going to make one flock and one shepherd. That's Him. One pastor, if you will. That's Christ. So if a local church elevates one man, there's a tendency to think, well, he's the pastor. And that would be competition with the true pastor of each local church, which is Jesus Christ Himself. And plus, it's really not wise to have one man as the pastor of a local church. Why? Well, because whenever you give and trust all authority in one man, it's not wise. It's not good. And thank God, all the authority is not invested in me in this church. And you can rejoice and say hallelujah if you want to on that. But we have elders, and we get together every week. We spend an hour and a half or more together. Uh, We read the Scriptures together. We talk about the needs of the church. We pray for you on a regular basis. And you can thank the Lord that I don't get my way all the time. Uh, And that's the way God set it up. There is wisdom in a plurality. And that's why there's victory in a a multitude of counselors in the book of Proverbs. In the same way with leadership. Uh, And so that's the wisdom of God. To have a plurality of elders. So number one, they don't compete with the idea that Christ is really the head of the church. One head. He's the one pastor. He's the one shepherd of the church. And all the elders are just under-shepherds but we work together. There's not just one man competing with the, the one authority of Christ. So how did this notion develop though? Because it's so prominent today that we have the pastor of most local churches. Well, John Hanna, who is my uh, church history professor in seminary, wrote a book called Our Legacy. And he says that this idea of one pastor... Uh, in a local church arose through Ignatius of Antioch. And he was the bishop of Antioch in Asia Minor. The Antioch where Paul ministered. And uh, he was believed to be a disciple of the Apostle John. So he should have known better. But he started the shift from the New Testament pattern of a plurality of elders by making the office of bishop separate from the office of elder. So you'd have a plurality of elders, and then you have one bishop. And that one bishop... Now, now elders are bishops. They are overseers. They're, they're, all, they're all synonyms. But he took out the notion of overseer and made it a singular office within the church. So you have a plurality of elders, but then they elevate one to be the bishop. And this began early on in the, in the local church, and it's, uh, it's very unfortunate that it did. So what Paul is doing in verse 23, 
He is appointing elders for each local church. Now, some churches are so small or they don't have enough qualified for there to be a plurality. And, uh, but it's always best to work towards a plurality of elders. And that's the way uh, the Lord set it up. Well, let's look at how they are chosen. And actually, there's a role of men in the process. And there's also uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. So we look at the role of men. Now notice in verse 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them, that is, when they, Barnabas and Paul, appointed elders for them, that is, the, the church, the congregation in every, in every church. So the ones doing the appointing are men, and they're primarily Barnabas and Paul. Uh, this particular verse, verse 23, the word appoint from the New American Standard literally means to stretch out the hand. And some people will say, well, oh, that means the congregation is all voting. So the congregation puts forward the men, then all the congregation vote by raising the hand. Uh, it could mean that, but not here. The other meaning of, of uh, to stretch out the hand, which is translated to appoint, means to stretch out the hand as you lay hands on a man to, to uh, ordain him to the ministry. And in the context here, it's clearly Barnabas and Paul that are doing the stretching out of the hand, not the congregation. Now the congregation has a voice in that. They need to certainly approve because they're going to submit to the authority of elders. So they have a role in that and certainly endorsing and, and, and uh, being a part of the approval process. But the actual choosing and ordaining was left up to the existing men of God, the Barnabas and, and Paul. BDAG, which is the uh, letters for the leading authority Greek lexicon, that uh, if you're a Greek student, you got to have this uh, lexicon because it's the best one that's out there. It's the most uh, involved. And it comments on this verse that this does not involve a choice, a stretching out of the hand of, of the group. But here the word means appoint or install with the apostles as the subject. The apostles are the ones doing the appointing or the installing. So the elders were always handpicked by other mature leaders who were able to recognize the qualifications for the leader. That's why Paul told Titus, look, I sent you to Crete so you can appoint elders in every city. So Titus carried on that work. Uh, and again, the, the church has a, has a role in certainly acknowledging uh, the, that choice as well. But even more importantly, there's also the role of the Holy Spirit in picking elders. We see this in Acts 20:28. 20, Later on, Paul is going to write to the elders at Ephesus, and he says, "Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood." So here we see the Spirit of God actually is sovereignly guiding the choice of the elders and putting them in, in, uh, in office. Now we see this, for example, you see God's activity in Acts 1. How did uh, the replacement for Judas come about? They drew lots. 
Well, you say, well, that's the most random thing in the world as you draw it. Not if you read the book of Proverbs because Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they drew lot. They first prayed and asked for God's guidance. They drew lots and Matthias was, was chosen. So God was in control of choosing the replacement for Judas. How about Saul and Barnabas when they were set apart in Antioch in Acts 13? How did that go, come about? The Holy Spirit told the church, told the prophets and the teachers, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And then you see, of course, uh, in other places, Jesus always chose His twelve. Jesus later on chose Paul in Acts 9, appeared to him, said, you're a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name abroad. So the, the Lord is then ultimately in control. So the responsibility of the godly men in the local church is to hopefully discern whom the Lord has chosen to be elders within that church. And so that's the process that it goes on. And sometimes they may mess it up or whatever, but uh, we're looking for God's choice, who God wants to be elders uh, in, that, in that local body. So the role of the Holy Spirit guided Barnabas and uh, Paul in ordaining and appointing elders in every church. A plurality of men to serve in their absence. Because they're going to be leaving and these, these little churches are going to be all alone. There's not going to be any apostles around for quite some time. So they're going to have to be men who know the Word of God. Men who are willing to study it and pray. Men who have the gifts of leadership that they can oversee and watch and lead and be good shepherds or pastors of the local flock. And so they're entrusting the well-being of these local churches into the hands of these elders. And, uh, and they do that with confidence that the Lord certainly will build His church. Well, quickly, the qualifications of elders are not stated in our passage. Uh, there is a list in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. To summarize all of that, the elders must be men of godly character. They must be men of spiritual maturity, good reputation, who are able to defend the faith. Now, our elders have gone through a book called Biblical Eldership, and this new group will go through this same book. And I can attest to you that every time the existing elders go through that book, we all become convinced that we're not qualified to be elders. It's a high standard uh, we are all flawed. Uh, we are all sheep as well. And uh, we, we continue to look to God for grace to fulfill our responsibilities. But uh, it's a high mark. And I would say that, that uh, every man in this church ought to aspire to live up to the maturity and the ministry and godliness of what an elder should be. Uh, we're not all elders in the church, uh, but I think every man ought to, to use that as a model to aim at. So that your life and character and ministry uh, is, is aiming at trying to be on the level of what an elder should be. Even though el- we as elders don't always 
attain it ourselves. But it's the goal. Um, they should not be a novice. They should be men who have walked with the Lord for some time. Now again, there are exceptions. For example, in Derby, right after Paul and Barnabas preached there and people came to faith, they turned around and left within a short period of time. And so they appointed elders there too. So they were only a few you know, weeks old in the Lord, but particularly early on, the Jewish men were well-founded in the Scriptures so they could, they could certainly uh, catch up pretty quick. And of course, the Spirit of God was there. So there's a lot, uh, a lot going on. Uh, the ministry of elders... Again, you can uh, combine the, the other title of overseer and shepherd, and you can get an idea of what elders should be about within the local church. Um, all elders are to be shepherds and, or pastors. Again, pastor and shepherd is the same word. All elders are to be pastors. And we see that because, for example, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, it exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God. That's what a shepherd does. Shepherd the flock of God. So all the elders, Peter exhorts, be pastors. Be shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God. And later in Acts 20, Paul will tell the elders at Ephesus, shepherd the church of God. Why? Because all elders are pastors. Because a pastor is a shepherd. And you need a multiple number of those men in each local church. Uh, the ministry is too great uh, for just a few. And uh, part of the function of the elders is to equip the church to do the work of ministry. Because really it's just, y'all, uh, by, by the ministry of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, uh, the goal of, of the ministry of the elders is to equip the saints within the local church so you can carry on the ministry. There's simply just too, too many needs, too many opportunities for someone needs to be encouraged or maybe someone needs to be exhorted. And three men, there's no way we can begin to cover all the responsibilities that are in this small of a church. Uh, so part of the, the ministry of elders is to equip the church, the believers within the church to carry on that work. So you are officially installed as ministers. And uh, that's the way it should be. But a shepherd, if you think of the relationship of a shepherd and the sheep, shepherds or pastors or elders, all synonymous terms, should feed the sheep, guide the sheep, guard the sheep, doctor the sheep when they're hurt or sick. And of course, the way we do that is through the Word of God and through prayer. Now, that's what elders are supposed to do. They're to shepherd the flock of God. They're to minister to them. To take the Word of God and feed their souls with it. To guide them in light of the, the, the light of Scripture, which is a, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We're to guard them from all the heresies and all the false teachings that are out there using the truth of Almighty God. Because the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And the truth is found in Scripture. 
And we're to be the physicians to bring the, the balm of Gilead, to bring a word of encouragement, a word of comfort to those who are hurting and those who are suffering with various uh, ailments or pain. So the, the, the role of an elder is to be that of a pastor-shepherd. And, uh, and this is, a, again, it's a very daunting task. Um, the elder shepherds are not to point to themselves, but they're always to point the church to the great shepherd. Because we're just the underlings. We're the under-shepherds. And uh, the church will never be sanctified by looking to men. Never. Ever. The role of men within the church, leaders, teachers, uh, whatever ministry we have is to point you to Christ. The Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, the one and only true Shepherd and Pastor of the church. And if we're not doing that well, then we're not doing our job well. So we need to point you to Jesus Christ because He's the one who can minister. He's He's the one to guide you. So the Lord is my Shepherd and I shall not want. For He leads me besides quiet waters green pastures. He restores my soul. Guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. See, that's the Lord. And so the under-shepherds, our responsibility is to point you to the one and only true shepherd. And that's Jesus Christ. So again, this is a, this is a vital ministry that Paul and Barnabas are engaging in in verse 23. And the importance of training leaders is just vital to, again, to the health and the longevity and vitality of any local church. That's why Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which uh, you have heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that's the responsibility of every local church is to continue to train up faithful men who are able to carry on the faith and sound doctrine and practical exhortation to the body of Christ. And that's why every church should be doing that if it can. Because all ministries really are designed and ordained by Christ to come out of the local church. We really shouldn't need seminaries or we really shouldn't need um, uh, missionary agencies because all that really should come out of the local church because Christ ordained the local church for that ministry. And yet because we fail so badly within our local churches, we've got to have all these parachurch organizations to come in and fill in the gap for the local church. But ideally, all of that should be rooted in the local church. Because that's the organization, that's the body that Christ ordained to carry out these ministries within the local church. And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to begin that process again, Lord willing, uh, and we'll have our first meeting after this, uh, after this worship service. So you can see how, how important and vital the role of elders are within the local church. And that's why you need to be praying for the elders of this church. Because uh, we need God's grace. We need uh, God's wisdom. We need God's energy 
to carry on the work that's been entrusted to us. And we often fall short. Often. And we need your prayers. And I read a prayer uh, that someone wrote that I would like to, to read and challenge you as to how you might pray for uh, the elders within our local church. And this is how you might pray to God for us. The prayer goes like this, God, give us men ribbed with the steel of Your Holy Spirit. Men who will not flinch when the battle is fierce. Men who won't acquiesce or compromise or fade when the enemy rages. Oh God, give us men who can't be bought or bartered or badgered by the enemy. Men who will pay the price and make the sacrifice and stand the ground and hold the torch high. Oh God, give us men obsessed with the principles true to Your Word. Men stripped of self-seeking and and a yin for security. Men who will go any lengths for truth. Oh God, give us men delivered from mediocrity. Men with vision high. Pride low. Faith wide. Love deep. And patience long. Men who will not surrender principles of truth in order to accommodate their peers. God, give us men willing to suffer scars rather than seek after medals. Who are more committed to conviction than convenience. Men who will give their life for the eternal instead of indulging their lives for a moment in time. Give us men who are fearless in the face of danger. Calm in the midst of pressure. Bold in the midst of opposition. God, give us men who will pray earnestly, work long and preach clearly and wait patiently. Give us men who walk by the Spirit, who live by faith, who who act according to Scripture, whose eyes are in heaven, whose book is the Bible, and whose chief ambition is to serve and love and glorify Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us men who are equal to the task. Those are the men the church needs today. And that's the kind of prayer you need to pray for those who lead within this church. So in verse 23, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. And how did they actually bring that to pass? Well, in verse 23, they prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so once they began to identify those men that the, that the Lord would have that measure up to the qualifications that God would have become those elders in those local churches, Uh, Barnabas and Paul prayed for them and they fasted for them. And they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed because they realized that we need God's choice and God's blessing on these men because we're about to leave. And as Paul warned the elders at Ephesus, you know, there are wolves out there. There are enemies out there. And you need to stand guard and guard the Gospel. 
But we're not going to be there to help you and guide you. You have the Word of God. And you have the Spirit of God. And you have the promises and faithfulness of Christ Himself who said that I will build My church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And with that, basically, they turned and left. And these guys are probably looking at each other saying, what do we do now? But they commended them to the, to the Lord in whom they had put their faith. And so Paul and Barnabas in each city identified God's elders, ordained them, prayed for them, fasted for them, commended them to the work of the Lord, and then in confidence in God's faithfulness, who is the pastor, the shepherd, the leader, the overseer, the head of the body of Christ, the bridegroom of the bride, the great shepherd, knowing that He would build His church, whether they were there or not. And all of us are expendable. The only one who isn't is the Lord. And they commended them into the hands of the Lord. So every every church they went to, they did that very same thing. So that every one of these young churches now has a plurality of elders to lead them and teach them and guide them and pray for them and minister to them. So they go back up to from Derby to Iconium. They go up to Antioch, Pisidia. And then they go down to Perga. And they preach there for the first time and establish a church and raise, raise up elders there. And they sail all the way back to the home church. To their sending church. And then they give a missions report in verse 27 and 28. Again, verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. Now, the first missionary journey probably uh, took a year and a half to accomplish. Some say a year, some say two years. So a year and a half is a good average for the length of time they've been gone. They've traveled over 500 miles by sea and 700 miles by land. So they've traveled over around 1,200 miles total. And, uh, you know, they didn't have cars. They had ships to get to Cyprus and to get back. But uh, they're walking most of that time on land. When they come back to their home church, Antioch, their sending church, in verse 27, they gathered the church together and it says they began to report all the things that God had done with them. Notice the emphasis. They didn't boast or brag about what they had accomplished. They didn't crow as if something, you know, it was their doing. There's no self exaltation. No, it was God what God had done through them or with them. But it's the work of God. It was God who gave them the grace and the calling. It was God who gave them the gifts. God who gave them the motivation. God who gave them the courage. God who gave them the strength to endure the challenges 
the persecutions, the difficulties and tribulations. It was God who enabled Paul to do miracles that he did along the way. It was all the work of God. That God had used these men as tools within His hand. It was God who swung them like sledgehammers to tear down the kingdom of Satan and to build up the kingdom of Christ. And that's the way God builds His kingdom today. He uses people. He uses us in many different ways. But He's using you. He's using all of us, hopefully, to build up His kingdom. Now, God could just simply send angels to preach the Gospel, but He doesn't delight in that. He wants to use us. He wants to use the body of Christ, the church. We are His messengers. We are the tools in His hands. So God can use you to help expand the Gospel and to bring sinners into the church and help them grow into maturity. And notice what he adds in verse 27 of how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now this was the headliner marquee news of the first missionary journey. This was the preeminent highlight God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this was, this was this shocking, disturbing news because basically what this is referring to is that the Gentiles are now coming into the covenant blessings without first becoming Jews. And that's always the way it had happened before. If a Gentile wanted to be saved, he had to become a proselyte. He had to become a Jew And that's how he got in. But now Gentiles are coming directly into the kingdom of God, into the church, without first having to become a Jew, without having to submit to all the dietary laws and all the ceremonial laws and circumcision. They don't have to do that. They come directly into the church. And this is what created such a problem in the early church with Jews and Gentiles in the same church, Jews still keeping out of tradition a lot of the ceremonial things of the law of Moses, but the Gentiles having no obligation to do that. They're not obligated to go keep the feasts of Israel or to do the circumcision or anything like that. And yet the Jews had this big barrier in their mind. How can they really be saved if they don't become like a Jew? And by the way, that's going to be the issue that will be launched before our eyes in the next chapter, in chapter 15. But they come back and they report in verse 27 how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now this is exactly what God promised that He would do. And even though this was a stumbling block to the Jews, remember, Paul, back in Acts 13, quoted from Isaiah 49 when he said, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. That's what's going on now. That's exactly what was prophesied in the Old Testament. But the Jews are clinging to Moses. They're clinging to the Mosaic Law, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, and these kinds of things. And it's going to take a while before they really enter into into the fullness of the freedom that we have in Christ. Not to be lawless or to undermine the moral law of God. That's eternal. But all these other kinds of laws no longer are applicable because Christ has fulfilled them. 
But notice in verse 27, it's God who opened a door of faith. Now today, that's not what you hear in most uh, evangelistic presentations. Who's to open the door of your heart? You are. I mean, most of the times we preach, uh, the invitation is, if you just open the door of your heart and ask Jesus to come in, you'll be saved. Well, that is actually a distortion of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I don't have time to get into that, but that's not what what uh, the Lord is speaking to the church there in that passage. But here it's God who's opening a door of faith. Now, He's not opening a door of an opportunity of faith. He is opening a door of faith. And when God opens that door, no man can close it. And when God opens that door, faith rushes in. There's an effectual, irresistible nature to this. But when God opens that door of faith to the Gentiles, then Gentiles get saved. That's why earlier on we read in Acts 11 that God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. That is a gift of God. Faith and repentance are gifts of God. And when the Lord opens that door and gives that gift, they get saved. And later on in Acts chapter 16, Luke will describe it on an individual level when he speaks of Lydia that the Lord opened her heart. She didn't open her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And if God doesn't open the heart, the door does not get opened. Because in our own depravity and hardness of heart, I would never open that door. Because I don't like Christ. I don't like Christianity. I'm going to bar my door shut and lock it if I can. Matter of fact, the unbeliever by nature fears the Gospel like the people on the East Coast feared uh, Hurricane Dorian. You don't want that thing coming in your neighborhood. And you don't want it coming down your street because it's going to do a lot of damage. So what do they do? They got their screws and nails and they boarded up their windows and boarded up. They don't want that stuff coming in. And that's the way they, that's their attitude towards the Gospel. So what God has to do, He has to come in sovereign grace and open that door and send His gifts of repentance and faith into the heart and then they get saved. That's really what Paul is reporting in verse 27. That God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so the early church started out with a lot of Jews coming in but also a lot of Gentiles coming in. And by the time the letters are written, that Paul wrote his letters, there's probably more Gentiles in the church than Jews in the church. Because Paul later tell us that God has sent a hardening to Israel so that uh, many of them obviously reject it. And so they begin their report. And I could just imagine the joy that they had in reporting all the things that God had done with them. Paul may have started out and they just walked through all the places they had gone. How They, had, they went to the island of Cyprus. And Paul and Barnabas with a gleam in their eye may be told how they went through the whole island and then they found opposition through Elamus the magician on the island of Cyprus and how he opposed the Gospel but how the Lord worked in such a way they blinded Him. 
And Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor of the island, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And probably the people were just praising God when they hear that stuff. And then they went on to Antioch, Pisidian. And there they gathered a large number of Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. And, and, and many of them came to faith. And God empowered Paul to do signs and wonders at Antioch. But unfortunately, the Jews became jealous and incited a persecution and drove them out of the district. So they came down to Iconium. And there again, a large number of Jews and Greeks came to faith in Christ. And again, the Spirit of God enabled Paul to do many signs and wonders. But again, they were threatened with persecution incited by the Jews. So they go to Lystra. And when they went to Lystra, Paul healed a lame man who was, who was sitting outside the pagan temple. And the uneducated Lyconians who didn't know any better began to call Barnabas and, and Paul Zeus and Hermes from the, from the Greek pantheon. Confused. And so they had to try to clear that up and Paul preached to them with very little effect. And then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came down to Lystra, stirred up a great animosity so that they actually stoned Paul and drug him out of the city. But then the grace of God, Paul revived. Maybe it was healing, supernatural. God was involved, no doubt. But he got up and went back into Lystra. And then the next day they went to Derby. They preached the Gospel there. Many disciples came to faith. And then they went back through all those cities again. They went to Lystra where Paul had just been stoned. And there they encouraged them and blessed them and appointed elders for them. And they went through all the churches until they got back home. They're fulfilling the Great Commission. Christ is building His church, making disciples through the power of the Spirit of God. This is Acts 1.8 being carried out in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. That you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. First missionary journey is the first leg of the remotest parts of the earth where the Gospel and the Great Commission are now being... being uh, carried out. I would imagine this report was full of joy. It was God-centered. It was Christ-exalting. The people were no, no doubt so blessed to hear of God's mighty works both in signs and in conversions. Christ building His church. They're seeing the, the, the grace and the power of Christ tearing down the kingdom of Satan. And whenever you hear those kinds of reports, how does it make you feel? You can not only rejoice in it, but doesn't it kind of motivate you to want to be involved in that? Doesn't it kind of uh, encourage you to, to be more bold and to, to be willing to sacrifice a little more? That's why I love it when our missionaries that we support come and give us their missionary reports. And we've had several of them recently, this year. I'm reminded of Proverbs 25, 25, like, like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. And when we bring in our missionaries, like Paul Snyder and Renato Giuliani and Armando, 
And then also Daniel Noren. And they give us their reports of what God is doing in their midst. Doesn't it encourage our faith? And we, we want to pray for them more. And we want, to, we want to be involved and participate in the work of the Gospel more. You know, Paul Snyder comes back and this guy's recovering from a disease and he can't even smile because the muscles in his face are still partially numbed out. And Trevor Johnson, his partner, is still recovering from this, these diseases that he's contracted over there. And you see men that are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ and it, and it, and it encourages us. What more can I do, O oh God, to be involved in the Great Commission? And then Renato and Armando and uh, their great uh, book ministry of taking these solid books and translating them into uh, Italian and, and uh, ministering to people, counseling people, sharing the Gospel with people. It just encourages us. And then Daniel Norn, the same thing when Daniel was here and shared and preached. And just to see what the Lord is doing over in in, in Sweden and reaching out to the Arab emigrants in that area and the book ministry there. And Lord willing, one day we'll be able to send forth the Malones to Japan and we'll look forward to them coming back and sharing with us what God is doing. And, and see, this is all to, to encourage and build up the church and always keep in front of us the Great Commission. The importance of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, verse 28, they spend a long time there with the disciples. A long time. You know, Paul had just been beaten up and stoned. I would imagine he needed some healing time. I think physically he needed to rest. Because here's a man that spent himself for Christ on the mission field. I think they also needed probably to be spiritually refueled and just enjoy the being loved on by the church family and just the encouragement and fellowship. They needed that. I mean, they've been out there alone. They've been out there on the front line, in the trenches, fighting. And it was time for them to have their lengthy furlough and to come back and rest up. And they were there a long time. A number of months. And then they're going to rise up again, be sent off again in a chapter or so to start the second missionary journey. But even the Lord would take time off at times because the ministry can be very draining. Uh, the ministry can be very discouraging. The ministry can be very taxing at times. And even the Lord Jesus after he would minister to the crowds and all the demands on his time and all the, the ministry of teaching and talking and counseling, whatever he did, that he would just go off by himself to the mountain and he would just spend time praying, being refueled, spending time in fellowship with his Father. And so we're glad they're able to make it back mostly safe and sound and they have a long time of rest before the Spirit of God is going to launch them out again. So this brings us really to the end of the first missionary journey. And it does remind us of the heart of the Great Commission is to plant new churches. And that's really exactly what they're doing. And may God give our church the grace to be involved in the Great Commission. Maybe Lord willing to start a new church maybe to send out missionaries, 
maybe to be involved in the leadership training so that the church of Christ can continue to grow under the blessing of its one pastor and one shepherd and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And may God bless us to that end. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You, Lord, for just being able to get a bird's eye view of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and just their heart to train men, their heart to plant churches, their heart to see the Gospel of Jesus Christ spread far and wide. And Lord, may that vision that they had be our vision. And may You empower us and equip us that we might be engaged in this great work of carrying the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.